there's still an enormous disconnect between what an executive expects to be able to do and what the software developer or what the machine learning person or the data scientist actually understands is doable. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. James Champ is a partner at Bloomberg Beta, a fund that invests in machine learning and the future of work. He's invested in many successful companies, including my first company, Crowdflower, and my second company, Weights and Biases. So I've worked with him for a really long time, and he always has really smart things to say about technology trends. I'm super excited to talk to him today. So James, you've, um, you've invested in AI for a long time. You were the first investor in Crowdflower, my first company, and you were the first investor in Weights and Biases. And I was curious to know your perspective on, on how you're thinking around investing in AI has changed over the last 15 years. Like clearly the, the market has changed, but I was curious to understand how your thinking has changed. You know, I, when we, when I invested in Crowdflower, I didn't understand that I was actually investing in AI. I thought that there was a broader collective intelligence problem that you were solving. And I was really enamored with both crowdsourcing and flash teams at the point. And to be honest, I kind of still am. Like I still sort of, in some ways that I think about AI or, you know, sort of machine learning more specifically, kind of as a misnomer. I kind of think that it's actually a collective intelligence thing that's going on. And so so that's like on the, the sort of the broad theoretical side. And then, and then the big change on the, on the investment side, I think is, you know, we went from a place where people actively didn't want to invest or where I actively, there are a couple of folks that you and I both know who I actively encouraged not to use the word machine learning because I thought it hurt their chances to raise money to a world in which now we live in where, um, you know, sort of there's an incredible amount of investment. And and what's interesting about like the incredible level of investment right now is that it's still we're still sort of at the cusp of getting actual great business results, right? And so we're we're sort of like at that point right now where I think all the pieces are are almost all there, but they're not quite. And everyone feels that you, you have that little bit of impatience where everyone kind of wants to get it, you know, and and you know, the talent's not quite there or the executives don't quite understand it. And so I think like that's, that's, and, and so that's like, that's like an uncomfortable also, but also really exciting point to be in. Well, do you think there's some chance that we're set up for disappointment? We are always set up for disappointment. <laughs> you know that as well as I do. So that's true. Uh, so Lucas and I, I, I'm lucky enough to, you know, get, you know, whatever, I guess every two weeks we have like our, our little morning chat and I feel like like sort of we have recurring themes and one of them is this continued question of where are we in the market? And you have to admit that like the last probably few quarters, there's this sense that everything is coming together, right? But at the same time, as you feel like everything's coming together, you're still looking behind you to say, oh goodness, in what way are we overselling? In what way are people misunderstanding things? And at least to me, it feels like there's still base levels of understanding that are missing. And it still feels to me like, like there are sort of opportunities to define the market in sort of like the right way rather than the buzzy, silly way. When do you think investors kind of flipped from feeling like machine learning was a science project to machine learning was like a good business to invest in? I mean, you've always done kind of early stage, seed stage investments. That's probably where the change happened the earliest, but but when was that and, and what was going on that caused that change in mindset? I mean, some of it is that, well, okay, you know, there's this little joke around Google and Facebook where, you know, sort of what do startups really do? We commercialize things that Google figured out five years ago, right? And then we bring it to the rest of the world. And there's a little bit of that sense that that's like not ridiculous, right? That you saw sort of like the kind of changes that people were able to implement and build inside the big fangs and then realize that this is this should be more broadly available. And so you had you had that on the one side. And then on the other side you had like sort of these remarkable well, okay, so I, I, I mean, how do I think about this? I think about this in terms of on the academic side, you had a few things happened, right? On the one hand, you had great results, right? Just super impressive results. 
but also there's a way in which like academics sort of figured out how to play the game in the sense that the machine learning world was sort of well-defined enough now that people can compete on some basis that they understood. Um, I remember there was this guy who gave this great pitch around um, how to think about advances in machine learning. And he made the point that actually, maybe it's really about the size of the data set. Do you remember who that guy was? <laughs> Do you think that's still true? That was Lucas, by the way. That was Lucas, <laughs> just to be clear, just to be clear. Um, uh, do I think that what do I think what is still true? Well, you know, I do think the size of the data set is is incredibly important. And I think, you know, maybe five or ten years ago, I thought it was really the only important thing and that advances in algorithms seemed um, pointless to me at the time. But you know, I think in 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 retrospect, maybe I didn't have such a quite extreme view, but you know, at that time it wasn't clear that like, you know, deep learning um worked much better than sort of traditional methods. There hadn't been a lot of improvements in algorithms for a really long time. And so almost all the advances felt like it was coming from bigger data sets. But now I look at, um, you know, OpenAI and DeepMind, and it feels like a lot of the advances that are happening there is, you know, on one hand, coming from bigger data sets, making more advanced modeling possible, but also advances in compute. Okay, so I've got a I've got a nuance and sort of like the extreme claim you used to make, which is, I actually think it's that with the availability of large data sets, but also with the availability of like the understanding that these large data sets were available, it meant that everyone understood how to play the game, right? That it meant that you have a whole wave of academics and companies and corporations and groups and teams saying, oh, we can play with these sets of data in interesting and novel ways. And so what that meant is that the thing that was the scarce commodity or the the way that you you basically laid that piece out meant that people were able to work on it. And then that's where you get all these exciting advances, in part because everyone agreed on sort of how to think a little bit about the data. Mm. You know, I want to ask you too, I think one of the things that, that you did really well was maybe starting a real trend in um, content marketing among VCs when you and Siobhan put out um, the machine intelligence kind of infographic where you laid out all the companies. I was curious what what caused you to start it. And then I feel like it became wildly successful and you stopped doing it. And many other people have picked up where you left off, but without the same, in my opinion, quality that that you had. So <laughs> can you tell us the the story behind that? Sure. I think, you know, um the fun start when the fun started, I think there was a sense that we were at the tail end, and incorrectly, there was a sense that we were at the tail end of a bunch of investment around big data and that there were a lot of failed big data projects sitting around. And so then the question was, what are you going to do with all that investment and understanding and collecting data? And then one of the claims or one of the one of the guesses was that you'd use that data for machine learning, right? And there are a bunch of AI applications. And sort of my, my old colleague, Siobhan Zillis, sort of had that, like pushed that insight a lot. And I think in part because she felt it like just intuitively but also she was surrounded by a set of folks who were like playing around different places with it. And then I think we were both sitting around thinking, well, wow, this is just so hard to understand and we couldn't make heads or tails of it. And then, and then basically what happened was, you know, Siobhan being just a really great synthesizer, but also someone who's quite dogged sort of decided to go work with another friend of hers who figured out ways to cluster different types of businesses. And so she basically then took that um, those, you know, clustered a bunch of different types of businesses that included a number of keywords around AI and then categorized it and then stuck it on a map. And, you know, I think that was like a, I think it was like a two month process to actually go through all of that and have all these horrible spreadsheets because it was super, I mean, there are products now that do this, right? But it was like super manual in some ways. And what was exciting about it, the moment she put it together, so I give I give her all the credit for actually doing the real work, then suddenly it felt like this world was legible in, for the first time. And then I think we kind of assumed that there should be people working on this full-time rather than having this just be a part-time job, and then they would do a better job of it. And I think that, um, and so for a few years, basically Siobhan would take some time off right around the summer to like just do the state of what's going on. And I think it made a, it was, it was really good, not just because, you know, the categories were not always right, but at least it gave something for people to agree or disagree on it. And it made a bunch of connections for folks that I think, you know, have been still valuable to this day. 
And so why do we stop? I don't know. Like there are too many companies, right? And and part of it is there are too many companies. Part of it is like, I, I you know, you think that like there should be. A, I mean, I do think there are a new class of journalists who now think that way, right? Who think that mix of computational plus willingness to do the work plus not sort of subject to like the day to day grind of reporting the next story, and they should be coming up with those conceptualizations. But I haven't totally seen. It. I, I do think it it was a novel contribution at the time. So one thing that I know you are very interested in because you talk to me about it all the time is is kind of how organizations function as as a collection of humans trying to work together towards a, a common goal. I feel like you you think about that more than most, and you think about machine learning um, more than most. I was curious how you think, or maybe how you've seen organizations um, adapt to machine learning becoming more mainstream within them. And I'm curious if you have um, predictions on how organizations might continue to evolve as, as machine learning becomes a bigger and bigger part of them. I mean, we're, we're not yet at the point right now where machine learning is boring enough that it could be adopted easily. So we're still in the part of the market or part of the phase where there's, you know, plenty of exploration and plenty of definition and ecosystem definition to be, to be had. But and, and you see some of that in like sort of slightly misguided arguments around augmentation versus automation. And I think you only have those sort of theoretical sort of questions when people don't have actual solutions they're dealing with day to day, right? But I think that there's definitely, a, so that's that's the first part. And then I think the, the second part is that like management theorists have thought for a long time or talked about the idea of a learning organization that organizations will actually get better over time because they you know learn things and generally that's just been a metaphor right that's just been sort of because of course organizations are not people they they don't have minds they don't learn anything right you know sort of maybe those things get codified in processes or rules and part of what's exciting about machine learning sort of in the next, like, you know, the pre-AGI version of machine learning is that we could actually digitize a bunch of decisions that get made on a day-to-day basis, and we can actually literally learn from them, right? That, like, something as boring as, you know, do I go to this meeting or not go to this meeting? Or something as important as do I invest in this project or not? All those things in the world we live in right now have almost no consequences. No one actually follows up on a consistent basis to make sure or understand whether things work or not. Or if they do, it's incredibly expensive and difficult, right? You just think about the, think about, not you guys, but maybe some other theoretical organization, you know, we'll have to spend all this time just digging down to figure out what product, like what random marketing campaign actually happened or didn't happen or how well it worked. And just the amount of automation people need to put in in order to like systematize that and what's exciting about sort of like or at least to me what's exciting about like sort of the data rich ml world we could be living in is that those decisions we can now find out whether they actually work or not and then we can actually maybe consistently start making better decisions right now there are also a bunch of you're going to say something what are you going to say well let's take your example of should i go to a meeting or not how do I ever even know in retrospect if I should have gone to a meeting? Like how, how could an organization really learn whether or not it makes sense to go to a meeting? Okay. So, so I think there's, okay. So, you know, one of the other angles that I'm very interested in is like that intersection around machine learning and the social sciences. And so if you'll talk to like management folks that, you know, or rather on the, on the AI side, right, there's all this question of what's the objective function. And the, the interesting thing is that on the social sciences side, they've learned the lesson, right? Which is, I don't know, we'll have some objective function and it'll be good enough to like sort of manage, but it'll never be perfect. That actually will have to change over time because, uh, you know, the most interesting systems are all dynamic. They're dynamic because people are interesting, right? That, you know, sort of once you decide that, um, once you decide that one metric is the right way to measure whether a meeting is good or not, people will start to learn that and they'll start to game it. They'll be like, you know what? Whenever Lucas smiles twice, then I'm going to go always make sure to make him. I'll tell some stupid joke and it'll detract from the actual purpose of the business, right? And so I, I think that the, the illusion is that you'll come up with some perfect metric 
And I think the actual goal is to continually come up with, you know, metrics that slightly will change over time and you'll understand what works in a different works or doesn't work, but that'll be okay. Right. That in, you know, you think about it in traditional organizational science, there's this great paper I think called like, um, on the folly of wanting a and rewarding B right. Um, or measuring B. And I think like that, problem is going to be forever, but that's part of the fun of the job, right? That's part of the fun of creating organizations and social systems. I totally agree with that. But I feel like even, I mean, maybe I don't want to harp on this case too much, but I'm curious because I, I always wonder myself if I should go to a particular meeting or not, but mm-hmm. how would you even make an imperfect measure of that? Like how, what, what, what do you even imagine like looking at to, um, so you can certainly imagine it as a, you can imagine it as like, is the meeting useful to you? You can also imagine it in terms of is the meeting useful for, to increase the collective organize, collective intelligence of the organization, right? And then, you know, sort of you can certainly do direct measures, which we can just literally ask you how good was that meeting afterwards, or we can literally ask the team how good was that meeting afterwards, or we can literally look at the number of things you write after that meeting, right? Or we can literally look at the number of times that you nodded or didn't nod. So, I mean, which is to say, like, all those signals are incre- increasingly cheap to gather and when they get cheap to gather that's when we actually get interesting innovation when it's incredibly expensive when you need to hire like mckinsey to do some study and then hire a bunch of people to build some system like some very expensive bespoke system then it's not that useful right because then your ability to like move and play with the edges of of your social system becomes too difficult and then you're sort of your chance to actually design it on the fly and sort of continue to understand it. Like that's, I think the, the interesting, the interesting edge around social systems. Interesting. Where do you see machine learning making a meaningful difference in organizations today? I mean, in all the normal places, right? That we're now finally getting good enough to cluster large scale bits of information in ways that are meaningful so that we can provide consistent responses. And so I think that that piece of it, which is the, you know, the big version of machine learning, you know, finding the most critical decisions you need to make, the most digitized pieces, and then finding ways to like sort of consistently improve and collect it. I think that that's, that's sort of where most of the energy and opportunity is right now, but that'll change, right? That'll change. I think that the exciting, does that, does that make sense? First of all, you you know what I mean? Totally. You know, uh, okay, so let me take one slight digression as we're talking about this. Of course, one of the, as you talk, as you ask this question, the, the real answer is that executives could know how to apply machine learning if only they understood a little bit more than what they learned from reading or watching a movie, right? And there's still an enormous disconnect between what an executive expects to be able to do and what the software developer or what the machine learning person or the data scientist actually understands is doable. And so I do have to make the pitch, which I think I've done too many times to you, which is I, I do remain convinced that the the sort of like three to four hour class that you used to teach to executives on how to think about machine learning probably is the best like if we were to say like what's the best way to improve the way people think about machine learning, you should make your boss's boss take a three-hour course and just sit around and play with like a very simple machine learning model because in that process they will at least have some intuition about how incredibly powerful, unsexy, brittle, finicky, and incredibly scalable some of these models that you'll build will actually be. Well, you know, it's not the core of our business, but I am passionate about doing it. And really, it's not that we, you know, shut down those classes. There wasn't actually much demand for it, or maybe we didn't pursue it um, aggressively enough. There's much more demand for the the tools that we build. But I guess I'm I'm curious, you know, when you did the class and your Uh, colleagues did the class. Yeah, go ahead. What's that? No, 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 maybe I'm I'm, I'm actually, maybe I'm just softballing a, a you know, a pitch to you, but I'm curious, you know, it seemed like you really liked that class and really felt like, you know, your team got a lot out of it, but really what was it that you feel like you, you took away from those, those couple hours of, of building models? So, you know, what, what you did is you did like half and like it was to a wide non-technical or audience, well, you know, a few technical ish folks. And what you did is you gave a little overview 
And then you had them fire up an IDE, open up some things in Python, have access to some data of like, I forget, what are they, socks? What was, what are the images? Oh yeah, fashion, fashion MNIST for <laughs> those in the audience, yeah. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And then, and then, and then you had them, and then you gave them a very straightforward framework, but you had them like sort of played around with slightly different approaches. You gave them the opportunity to see the results and you gave them the opportunity to sort of like play with different parameters. And then you introduced a few curveballs, right? And it was actually a very straightforward sort of exercise, but it was, and it was curated and it was like accessible to a wide range of folks. And what was interesting about it was that for the first time, rather than thinking about sort of like the grand vision of machine learning, you had like a wide range of folks thinking about it from a very concrete, like sort of the way that a developer would, right? Where you're like actually dealing with data and you're thinking, oh, what does this actually do? And you're thinking, oh my goodness, this totally broke. But by the way, I could also just apply this to like 50,000 images instantly, right? Which is an amazing feeling for someone. And, and it's a different kind of feeling that you get from building software, right? And, and I think that that, that intuition. I'm kind of convinced that you could teach this to Nancy Pelosi and she'd learn something and she'd make better policy decisions as a result of that. I'm kind of convinced that if you, you know, sort of, we've done a slight variation of this with a couple other executives and it worked really well. And, and at least to me, it feels like that, that shift in mindset and also just like that little bit of finger feel meant that folks just had better intuition, right? And I, and I think it made a huge difference. And then they also asked like better questions. One thing that always surprises me about um, VCs because they always come, so many come from a quantitative background and I feel like there's so many investments being made is, is sort of the, the lack of rigor in the decision-making process as, as far as I can see. I'm curious at, at Bloomberg Beta, do you use any machine learning or any kind of, is there any kind of feedback loop where, you know, something's successful and then you decide to invest more in that? Only for top of funnel, only for top of funnel. I mean, in our case, we're seed stage investors, right? And so our process and our process for follow on is very different from, let's say, some of the bigger, like a bigger fund. But I will remind you though, like, you know, sort of Part of the fun of venture is that the game is constantly shifting, right? If it was exactly the same game, if the business models were exactly the same, then it'd be like kind of like everything else. It'd be no fun to be routinized, right? And part of the excitement of the job, but also part of the opportunity, and the only reason it kind of exists is that there, there are chances for new business models to emerge where the old metrics no longer make sense. And... And I think like those sorts of windows come around every so often. And to be honest, that's where like where there's that kind of uncertainty, where there's either a key technical uncertainty or key business model or market uncertainty. That's where like the amazing opportunities come from. You have been doing venture for for quite a while now and have seen a lot of you know big wins and losses. Are is there anything consistent or in, in terms of like what you saw? at the beginning of a successful company or is it that the the venture market sort of adapts to whatever that is and and the opportunity goes away like do, i'm sure you reflect on this because it's kind yeah. of like the, your main job like are there is there any kind of common threads that um that you you see in the in the successful businesses that you've backed i mean i think inevitably there are arbitrages that exist or there are ways to tell signal from noise but because the market is clever and you know, you're dealing with founders who are really smart and care a lot about what they're doing. You know, what you're going to end up seeing is like they'll end up imitating those signals of success, right? And so there's a little bit of this constantly shifting game where you're looking for a new signal to say that this thing means that these guys are high quality or these this insight is like really important. And then they'll figure out, oh, you know what I really should do? I should make sure I game Hacker News, and then I'll get all my buddies to go on Hacker News and then we'll coordinate and then that'll no longer be a signal, right? Or, you know, what I really should do is I should make sure that all of my friends are consistently starring my open source project on GitHub. You, I mean, just meaning that like once you figure it out, then because then this goes back to like, I think why, you know, these sort of dynamic models are so much fun, right? You know, like that's the that's the whole point of it because and then so then you march on and think, okay, what's another what's another signal of success, right? I'm curious now at this at this moment, 
if I um if I showed up and I was pitching an ML company and my customers were kind of maybe the the less tech forward enterprises. I feel like I probably shouldn't name names because some of them are always advised as customers, but like, you know, sort of like, you know, if, if my customer base was like, you know, Procter and Gamble and GE, mm-hmm. would that be more appealing to you than if my customer base looked like um, Airbnb and um, Facebook? Like what, what, I mean, how would you, how would you compare those two? Is, is one obviously better? I, I do think it entirely depends on the nature of the product and the nature of the solution. You know, I think the way that I think about it is that there's sort of like a gradient of admiration, right? And in different types of markets, different people are higher up on the on the sort of like, in, imagine that map, right? The higher up, you know, sort of in terms of admiration. And, you know, in some places, in some markets, you know, some set of developer tools, then actually it does matter a lot whether or not the early adopters come from, you know, sort of the tech forward or from Facebook or whatever, right? But in plenty of markets, and increasingly as machine learning gets mainstreamed, right, then the questions will all be around business benefit. And then the question is, who are the companies that other people admire or look up to or aspire to become in those specific markets, and I think mm. that's part of the shifting, sort of the shifting nature of the game. I see. And is the gradient of admiration always always clear to you? Like, I mean, you could. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, like, the, okay. So you know, this the secret fun part of the game is when you figure out what that gradient looks like before everyone else does, and then you play with people who are sort of higher up there, right? And then you figure out, and you go, oh yeah, everyone's going to admire the data scientists at Netflix, you know, whenever that that was true, right? And and then you play with them, and then you come up with much better insights, or you know, when it was true about you know whatever organization. Um, and so, you know, it's not that complicated to think about, right? You know, you just ask people, who do you like or who do you look to, you know? Um, and, and I think that con- like that constantly shifts. So one of the things that we were talking about that I thought was intriguing was y- you mentioned that businesses that kind of focused on ML, even if they're not like selling into ML, but using ML for, for applications in different industries, you expect them to have a different business model potentially. And and my thought is that the business model would match the market that they're selling into, but you you felt differently. I'm curious to hear your your thesis on that. Okay, so so I I you know like uh, so I'm a VC. I'm only right occasionally, and you know I believe most things provisionally, right? You know, sort of. I, um, but I'm pretty sure about this one. I'm pretty sure that we underestimate the effect of technical architectures on emerging business models. So, you know, if you were to go back, I don't know, go back to like Sabre, which IBM builds for, I guess, American Airlines, right? When they have a bunch of mainframes. In some ways, that business model, which is we'll charge a bunch of money to do custom development for you, that really comes partly out of the technical architecture of like the way that mainframes were like centralized in some other place, right? And the moment that PCs come around or like they start to emerge, there's, there's a way in which we think about the you know, maybe the best business model ever, which is to say, you know, sort of the one that Bill Gates creates, you know, which you charge money for the same copy of software over and over again, right? Like it's an incredible business model. Um, That partly arises because Bill Gates and Microsoft and a bunch of folks were stubborn and clever and pushed through an idea. But part of it was also because there was a shift in the technical architecture, right? That you ended up with a bunch of PCs. And so then a different business model because there are different economic characteristics of how that soft that that technical architecture is both rolled out and how it's developed and how you get value, then some different business model might make sense. And then you see the same thing for the web, right? You know, when you have a ubiquitous client in whatever 1995, I think everyone realizes that, oh, that means something new. And it takes, you know, five or six years before people come up with the right way to talk about it. But subscription software really only makes sense and only works in a world where you have a ubiquitous client that anyone can access from anywhere, which is sort of a shocking idea now, right? You know, you compare it to like delivering CDs before or before that, you know, someone, I guess, getting a printout of some code that they were supposed to retype in. And so that in each one of those cases, it's, it's you know, it's enabled and there's some new dominant business model that comes about because the technical architecture shifts. 
And of course, you know, that, that only enables it. It's really the people who build the thing and market it and sell it and come up with the new dominant business model. Like they still have to do that. But it just strikes me that the shift that we're going through right now around machine learning or data centric applications or this change in collective intelligence, however you want to talk about it, like that, the nature of building those applications is different enough and a technical architecture is different enough that there should be some other business arrangement that ends up becoming the better one for both consumers and for some new dominant customer. You know, you think about how on the machine learning model building side, like you just think about just the amount of data you're trying to like just own and control and understand and manage, right? And you think about like how that changes what's a scarce resource. It just strikes me that there's something there. And so to be honest, I'm constantly looking. Like in my mind, what's my grand dream? My grand dream is to meet that person who's working inside one of the big companies who's been frustrated because she's like understood how the 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 grain of the wood of machine learning lends itself to some new business. And then her boss's boss is like, that's stupid. We need to maintain our margins or whatever, right? And then and so I've made like that's the grand dream that I'll find that person and be able to invest and partner with them for a number of years. In your imagination, are there ways that that, that model could look? I mean, I, I suppose it's a little bit hard to imagine these new things, but, you know, subscriptions had been around for a while. Do you imagine, like, you know, a move to more of, like, a usage-based pricing or maybe, like, yeah. companies that are willing to pay for your data and combine the data? I'm trying to picture what this, this, this could be. Right. So, you know, l- let me describe some, you know, I, I, I led a, a little conference chat the other day, a little session about this. And I kind of try to do this any, anywhere I go. I try to like lead a session on this because I'm kind of obsessed. Um, and, you know, sort of certainly usage-based is quite good and interesting, but I would just contend that in some ways usage-based sometimes puts me as a vendor at odds with my client because I just kind of want you to do more of the thing, right? And and sometimes it's not really useful because I, I don't want to name names, but like I, we are certainly in a world right now where people are wasting a lot of money either on compute or storage without clear business value. And then they're going to someday actually figure it out and then, you know, sort of cause a lot of trouble, right? You know, that. so I think that that's... That's the pro and con of usage base. There's certainly some notions around data co-ops, right? Where the the realization is these models get better when our we share our data and then we share our data, maybe we share upside together, you know, sort of, you know, I think there are a bunch of folks who are trying variations of that. The 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 dream, of course, always is to be in perfect alignment with your customer. And one way that happens is you have something like a, a value-added tax or a VIG, right, where you benefit when they benefit. But right now in the world that we live in, understanding that benefit is so hard, right, because it requires an enormous amount of, of infrastructure and management layers and A-B testing and blah, blah. Just think about all the problems, all the reasons why it's never worked. And maybe someone will figure that out, right? Maybe all the objections that we've had for the last X years around why this sort of like benefit-driven business model doesn't work. Maybe it'll work in some like sort of with some twist or turn of how we think about machine learning models. You had me convinced many years ago that um, the, a competitor would come along to Salesforce that would aggregate the data and use it in smart ways. And Salesforce has this inherent disadvantage because they're they're so careful about like you know keeping everybody's data separate and not building models on top of it. Do you still believe that's coming or do you think there was some wrong assumption that you're making or has it happened quietly and I, I haven't noticed it? No, it hasn't happened yet. I mean, like, look, Salesforce is like this enduring great business, right? That's going to last for decades and decades. That said, it still does strike me that there's an inherent tension. It, you think about all the trouble that they spent convincing me or convincing people like me to work with them because we believe that the data was safe in their cloud, Right. And, and then just the idea that I might share data with other clients is like crazy and terrible, in, at least in, from that point of view. And so there's that inherent tension in sort of like the traditional or the now established SaaS view of the world. And I think it's very hard for the incumbents then to sort of like move off of that sort of way of thinking about the world. But harder yet is convincing their clients and their customers who've been trained to think that way, right? There's a, there's a, it's funny, maybe not funny story f- around 
you know, sort of Microsoft, where Microsoft got in a lot of trouble at some point for sending information back to their main servers about how PCs were doing, you know, because they would crash or there'd be some bug report, then they'd automatically send it back. It was a huge scandal because how could Microsoft be looking and stealing all my information? And the hilarious thing, not hilarious to Microsoft, but the hilarious thing about that is like, that's right as Google Docs is starting. And in the case of Google Docs, Google literally sees every single thing I type, right? I mean, it's like literally stored on their servers. And somehow, because it's a different configuration or there are different expectations around the business, I'm okay about it. And I think something similar will happen with some, you know, sort of with with sort of emerging sets of machine learning driven businesses. Although it's interesting that you you say that. You, you had a really interesting viral um tweet at one point showing how much better Google's um, transcription was than, yeah. than Apple's, which I thought was really interesting and actually made me think about the same point of, you know, Apple um, is so kind of known for being careful with privacy and Google is known for being kind of much more laissez-faire, I guess, with, with people's um, data. But it's not clear to me that um, Google has use that perspective to create a huge advantage, at least, you know, in terms of market cap. Do you, do you think over time um, Google's point of view will really serve it or has something changed? Okay, so I think in that case, it's a little bit of a slightly different nuance thing, right? I mean, why, why was that Pixel 6 voice recorder so much better? It was better in part because they had an on-device model, right? That was one part. And another part of it is that they just collected data in, in much more thoughtful ways and, and um and so what did that mean? That meant like sort of you had a very fast, very accurate sort of like local experience. It, the fact that that's true is like also that, you know, that's that's definitely true. But it's also confounded with the fact that Google is a very large organization right now. And they've got lots of things that they worry about and lots of ways that they're unwilling to take risk. You know, sort of in my ideal world, someone who built the sort of technology that Google did around voice would have decided that, oh, you know what, actually, this should be part of some SDK or some API, and we should just make this available for everyone, and developers should be building a bunch of products, right? I mean, I think that's the other thing that I think we're on the cusp of, because we're just at this point where there's this massive investment in infrastructure and research and tooling around machine learning, and we're right at the point where, where maybe people will build products that are actually good, right? You know, like, like we're just at the point where the lessons learned around how human in loop works, the lessons learned around experiences on user interface, all those things, they're they don't quite take it like or value added to like the end user. Like we're just at the point where there will be enough variation that some ideas will actually take hold and and so I'm sort of excited about that part too. Are you starting to see that? Because I, I feel like maybe I'm too impatient, but I kind of can't believe how much better all aspects of NLP have gotten. In the last few years, I feel like, you know, transcription is now solid. It's translation stunning, right? Now, like, you know, it works. Like, you know, I, I mean, it, it basically works. You can communicate um, for sure with, with people that you don't speak the same language with by um, using a translation system. Um, the, the um, you know, Hugging Face and, and OpenAI's GPT-3 have, have just, like, ha- have incredible demos. And yet, I don't feel like it's impacting my life that much except for you know, asking Alexa to play me <laughs> music. I mean, well, that, that, but you're, you're exactly right. We're at that point right now where I'm hoping your listeners, you know, sort of are building products because now it's easy, it's easier to access it, right? You know, there's this talk about democratization of machine learning. You know, we talk about this often, I feel like, but I think it kind of misses the point, right? The point is by making this more broadly available, it also means that the extraordinary person on the edge who might not have had access to try this before, the person with like the crazy idea that will make a huge difference when we act, once we actually see it, that they can start working as well. And I think that that's, 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 the, that's part of the exciting thing that I think everyone misses as they talk about the way that this whole world is shifting. But you're exactly right, that we should be deeply dissatisfied with, on the one hand, all the progress that's made with sort of voice and parts of NLP, we should be super impressed with it and we should be deeply dissatisfied because the products and the product minds 
and the UI folks and the business minds have not yet figured out how to take advantage of those advances in ways that actually make sense and go with the grain of, of the technology. One thing that I would imagine being hard as an early stage investor investing in machine learning is that it's so easy to demo successful cases of machine learning. I feel like no other field is it quite as easy to make a compelling demo. And yet it feels like to make a working product, it's often, you know, going from like, you know, getting like the air, bring the air rate down from like 1% to 0.1% or something like that. Do, do you have trouble? Okay. Like, so here's my secret. Or, okay. So I'll give you one of my current secrets. Okay. Tell me. Um, so I just assume it doesn't get better. Like if the application requires the thing to go from 95 to 98 or 98 to 99, I just, the mental exercise, okay, what if it doesn't get better? Will users still get value out of it? And if users still get value out of it because of the way they configured the problem, right, then then it's an interesting product, right? But if, you've, if you're sitting there thinking, you know, we just spend, it'll just be another month before we go from 98 to 99.5, then I'm like, well... Eh, you know, I don't really know if I believe that. It, I, I mean, think about this. This goes back to like one of our earliest conversations around search quality. This is like many, many years ago. And like, what's the beauty of search? The beauty of search is that when it's wrong, I'm okay about it. And there are whole sets of products in which like you can take advantage of the fact that it's super fast, it's consistent. And when it's wrong, I'm okay about it. Right. You know, I feel like you do that over and over again, or you find the products that do that, then like those are interesting applications. So for an investor, you're doing an extraordinary job of not bragging about your portfolio. But I mean, give me some glimpse of the future. What's the what are the exciting stuff that you're seeing lately? Um, you know, sort of. Yeah, I mean, part of it is okay. Let, as we think about, well, there are two parts that I want to talk. Like, I sort of want to highlight. You know, sort of on the ML infrastructure piece, I still think that there are analogies or lessons to be learned from traditional software development, right? I think that you guys have done such a good job of understanding so many pieces out of that. And then I, but I still think like, you know, you think about like QA, like, like sort of figuring out how to consistently do QA, like sort of, I think that like, there are lots of lessons to be learned from normal software development to be applied to computer vision and structured data and those sort of like those sort of release processes. And so there's a company called Colina that sort of is in the middle of figuring out parts of that. I think that like you look at companies like um well, you know, we talked to Sean about we talk about Sean every so often. Like, you know, you think about you you look at the demo, like the publicly available stuff about primer. Right. And you look at and just imagine sort of what they're actually doing under the hood. You know, if you go to primer.ai and you look at sort of their ability to like synthetically generate, I mean, their ability to synthesize huge amounts of data and lots and lots of articles and just make sense of the world. And imagine applying that in their case to like a bunch of national security use cases. Um, I, I think they've done, I don't know, if you look up various things that are happening in the world right now and the word primer, you'll see these demos and it's sort of, the, you know, they can't show you what they're actually doing, but like you get that sense of like, oh, this is changing the way that people are actually sort of doing things right now. So that's, you know, sort of, that's the sort of thing that I feel like on the application layer, but then also like sort of in the development part, we're just sitting on right now. Um, there's, oh, going back to like your point around um, my secret ARB, right? Which is, I just sort of assume it's not necessarily going to get that much better. Um, there's this great guy, Michael Cohen, uh, at this company called Spark AI. And their big insight is similar to that line, which is like, they're like, look, we want autonomous vehicles and we want them to be perfect, but they're not going to be perfect for a long time. And so let's just make sure there's a human in the loop, right? And so you can think of them as like, in some ways, sort of like uh, whenever the machine is uncertain about something right in front of them, they'll get a response in like, you know, a pretty short SLA then to make a decision. And thus you can actually roll out these applications. You can roll out these sort of in the real world applications with the realization that the model doesn't have to be perfect, right? That we can actually have backup systems. And I think that sort of perspective, assuming like the sort of non-utopian view of what's possible with machine learning is, is super exciting to me. I'm curious what you think about, um, and I guess this is a broad question, but about uh, ethical implications of machine learning. I mean, many, many people talk about um, machine learning and ethics, and there's, there's, I feel like there's constantly in the news, um, you know, issues that come up with 
machine learning. Uh, what do you make of it? Like, do, do you feel like there's sort of special ethical considerations unique to machine learning different than technology or, or not? And, and I mean, how do you think about like what, um, you know, what kind of world you want and what regulations make sense? Hmm. So, you know, I think I have, I think it's, it's a good thing that we live in a world where people are more sensitized, right? On the one hand. And so I'm very glad to see lots of people applying their minds towards it on the one hand. On, on the other, okay, so, and this might slightly get me in trouble. There's like a game that I play with friends of mine who are ethicists or thinking about sort of the effects of technology. And I sort of ask, you know, sort of, I think it's appropriate to ask these questions around sort of what are the implications of this or that. But, but if you were around in like 1950, whatever, and someone proposed the compiler to you for the first time, someone said, you know, we got this really, really great way of like making software easier to develop and available and mass and scale and et cetera, et cetera. Would, Would you have allowed me to build a compiler? Just imagine all the harm that could come from a compiler. And imagine, like, to be honest, like all the harm that has actually come from compilers, right? Everything from hacking to stealing money from people, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a way in which, like, I think there's a reasonable argument that, like, we 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 wouldn't, like, given some current frameworks, there's an argument for why we should not have had a compiler, which seems on the face of it, at least to me, crazy, right? Like, absurd. And, I, and so... Um, to me, the questions instead should there should be this sensitivity and there should be these sets of questions. But in some ways, the questions should all be around how do we think about what do we do if we're wrong? And I think one of the beauties of machine learning is that embedded in machine learning, at the very core of machine learning, is this idea that these are not fixed heuristics or business rules, but actually these are sort of like these kind of guesses that we just have to assume that it'll be wrong sometimes, right? And so in that way, once you think from that framework or once your, your executives understand that's how they think, how models actually work, that they're wrong, they're never going to be perfect. Otherwise, you can have a big if-then statement, right? You know, sort of once you realize that they could be wrong, then you need to build the systems and the processes to, to deal with the fact that they could be wrong. And you also need to build a whole set of ethics and ways of thinking about like questions more like responsibility, rather than possibilities, right? Of, and, and I think that that shift in the way you might think about sort of machine learning, I think it will be much more profitable in the sense of being useful for humanity. What do you think? I guess it does feel like machine learning might not be as neutral as compilers in some cases. If you imagine it sort of taking inherent biases that we have in our society and then like encoding them in a very efficient system so that they can be sort of deployed at at bigger scale and um, with possibly less oversight. Right. And I, I think, okay, so that's only if you fall for the idea that we're trying to build an all-knowing God brain that will solve things for us perfectly. But instead, I think, and I think, and I think, you know, to be honest, like oftentimes when you'll talk to executives, that's how they will think about machine learning, right? They'll think if only we can get this perfect, then like we can rely on it forever. But instead of we thought about it as a bureaucracy that is right some of the time, but wrong too, right? And instead of we thought about it as like a possibly fallible system and we built in the support for that. Because remember, the nice thing about machine learning is that it's incredibly cheap. Like in the grand scheme of things, it's incredibly cheap to make these judgments on the one hand. And also it's centralized, right? And by being centralized and being cheap and conscientious, meaning it's like consistent, then you actually have a like one place where you can go and you can always say, if we fix it here, we can fix it everywhere, right? So that's one part of it. And I think the other part that you highlighted, which is it, it captures inherent biases, I think that's the other part, which is like, in some ways, it's a problem with the way that we anthropomorphize machine learning. Like one way to think about it is this amazing whatever mind genius thing on the other hand you could just think of it as like like an incredibly conservative attempt to cluster collective intelligence right that if if we understood that machine learning was derived from data and data is by nature historical and anything historical by nature happened in the past right then i think that changes a little bit your expectations about what the model could do right on the one hand and then it changes your expectations around what layers you need to put on top of it because you can't just rely on the model, right? You're going to have to have both 
sort of straightforward business rules to protect yourself, but also you also have human processes, to be honest, that will actually think it through. So I do have to, at this point, make the plug for one of my favorite papers, which is called Street Level Algorithms, which sort of talks a little bit about that, which talks a little bit about this. So you have to link to it. I don't, you know, so I don't know if you have you read it? No, no. Okay, I think I've tried to make you read it many times. It's totally worth reading. You should get Ali up to or Ali or Michael Bernstein to to chat about it at some point. But I think like their core insight is that if you did think about machine learning models as bureaucracies or as like sort of processes that could be wrong some of the time, that you change your expectations, but also like the ways that you can take advantage of machine learning, which is say like, you fix it in one place, you fix it for everyone, right? Those sorts of inherent advantages go with the grain of the technology rather than against it. Have you ever gotten a pitch on a company and not invested because it made you uncomfortable, like from a, like an ethical perspective? Oh yeah. I mean, plenty of times, right? And I think- Really plenty I mean, of times. There's, there's, I mean, there are plenty of times when I will say, I mean, on the one hand, I'm utility maximizing, but then I have my own idiosyncratic definition of utility. And my definition of utility doesn't map directly to just dollars, but maps into ideas of who I am and what kind of person I want to be and what kind of world I want to be in. And I think that that's true about all VCs, right? That, you know, VCs, like everyone pretends that they're like, or, or rather, a lot of people pretend that they're sort of pretty straightforward and utility, like dollar maximizing, but that's not true. We all have tastes and we all have things that we like or don't like and good or bad reasons to say yes or no to things. And I think that reality is always sitting with us. Is there a company that you feel like you've massively misjudged? Like, is there any, is there any like wildly successful business where you go back and like think about the pitch and, and feel like you like, like miss something or, or should update your belief system? I mean, constantly, right? You know, sort of the, the whole set of low-code, no-code companies that I sort of dismissed. Like if you, I, I think, you, I don't know if you remember this conversation. Like there's at some point when we chatted where I basically said that, you know what I really believe in? I believe in domain-specific languages. I think that DSLs are a much more powerful way to express business applications and the possibility for business applications than, you know, sort of, um, than all these low code, no code things. And I was totally wrong, totally wrong. I entirely misjudged the, the value add of making something easy and the way part of, in part of my head, I was like, well, you know, like a developer is valuable, not just because they can write things in good syntax. They're also valuable because they have to think through complicated ideas, abstract them and come up with like good code to actually build something, to get something to work, right? And what I misjudged was that there are a whole set of just like low level glue things that people need every day, right? That are super easy to do, that sort of fall right under the cusp of comp- you know, sort of really scary programming. And, and so that I totally misjudged. Mm-hmm. Well, one topic that we've actually never talked about, but I kind of wanted to use this podcast as an excuse to ask you is, I'm curious what you think about AI and consciousness. Like, can you picture um, AI becoming conscious? Is that something that you think you could imagine happening in your in your children's lifetimes? What does that mean? I guess, like, could you imagine that there's an ML system that gets to the point where you would um, not want to hurt it? Where you would sort of like care to about its 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 well being. Okay, so there are a couple of different angles that I go on with this. I think that's true right now. I feel bad when like I do lots of things to anthropomorphize. Sort of, I feel kind of bad when I drop my phone. Right, I feel really guilty <laughs> and I feel kind of bad about really? it. Really, for your phone? For my phone, yeah. Like I feel like, and and I think there are lots of ways that I, as a human, sort of assume human like characteristics to almost everything, right? From the weather to my camera to like the screen to like some computer program. I get irritated. Like, why do I get I get irritated with Chrome as if it's an actual person? Like it's just like a bundle of numbers, right? And and so I actually think that we're there already. I actually don't think that I don't think that like my willingness to imbue moral worth or value to non-human things is something that's out there someday, but actually it's something that we're doing, we, we do all the time right now. Um, and then, um, although I am Christian, which we talked about before, like 
I don't really take a magical point of view on consciousness. I think consciousness is like controlling what I pay attention to and the continuing log to sort of walk through. Like imagine, you know, sort of, and so, you know, like in, in that way, in that continuing log to sort of explain what I thought before, right? And so, um, so I probably don't, I mean, I, I both value it. I think it's really, really important. And it's like an incredibly important organizing principle, obviously, for me day to day. And I kind of think that lots of things are conscious already, right? That they already figure out ways to direct attention and organize and also tell stories about themselves. Does your Christianity not inform your thoughts about consciousness at all? Um. It totally does. I mean, it it, it certainly. But I, I mean, I think there's a little bit of this angle where I I think that the things we learn about the world or science constantly shift, and so I'm actually quite open and willing to sort of adopt and adjust based on how we end up changing our view of the universe. Does that, I, I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Is that like totally. a coherent? But I guess I, this, this always makes it concrete for me that I also was telling you I had to ask you, and I, I don't know how you felt about it, but I always am curious if people would go through that Star Trek transporter. Like, like if you saw a whole bunch of people go through a thing that disassembled their atoms and put them back together somewhere else safely, and you're convinced that it would work, would you would you subject yourself to that? Would that, would that alarm you or 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 not? Okay, so I have contradictory impulses. Like I get carsick, you know. Like I, you know, I get like sort of, I get woozy standing up on like walking over a bridge, right? So I'm sure there'd be that trepidation. But isn't there also this view, like, or, or like when you think about, you know, sort of yourself right now versus yourself, I don't know, whatever ten years ago. Like a bunch of the atoms have changed, have been replaced, right? And you know, in some ways, we are going through this slow motion transportation. I mean, in some ways, you're just speeding. I mean, in some ways, you're just speeding up that transformation. You know, of the rearrangement of those bits. And so, like, you know, I mean, I probably wouldn't be the first person to do it. But you know, You'd be I, like I don't the, know the hundredth. Or meaning that I would not necessarily have some deep, deep ethical, mystical reason to be concerned about it, because I kind of think we're going through it already, right? I mean, like literally. Your set of like atoms, like who are you? Are you your set of atoms, or are you set the pattern that your atoms are in? Right, you know, like I mean, in some ways, like you're the pattern. Interesting. I, you know, I'm I'm not Christian, but that um, transporter I think makes me more nervous than it makes you. <laughs> well, well, I mean, but 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 isn't it true though that you? I mean, like if you thought about like the the current the, your your current material composition right now like the literal pieces of it have changed pretty substantially and will continue to change. Right. Um, for sure. And, but there is, yeah. So uh, look, I, I just gave you my most tech positive version of it, but sure. You're asking me tomorrow if I would do it. I think, like, well, a little scary. Let's find out, you know, <laughs> but I do, but, but don't you also believe that you're your pattern rather than your actual, uh, you're you, like who you are is the organization of these things inside you. Right. Rather than the actual substance of it. That's true, but I feel like I am going to experience the world through somebody's eyes, and I think I am concerned that um, I might, my my future self might not be inhabiting the body of the person that comes out of that machine. But my my wife strongly disagrees with my <laughs> my point of view on that, so I can I can see both sides of it. I'm just I'm pretty sure that I just wouldn't um, wouldn't do it, no matter how many people went through it and told me that it was safe. <laughs> I mean, okay. Well, you say you say that now, but I, I will just remind you that, like, like our ability to adapt to circumstances and to change expectations is pretty dramatic, right? There's um, uh, there are plenty of things you do now that are super, like, would be super weird to like you from like 1999 or whatever. You're really young too, but yeah. you, you know what I mean. Like, like our expectations around what's normal or not normal shift consistently. Like staring at a phone all day long. <laughs> Yeah, seriously, right? Yeah. All right. Well, um, final two questions. Um, one one question is, um, what's an aspect of machine learning that you think is is underrated or underappreciated or underinvested in? I do think the all of the sort of HCI social system stuff really is underinvested in, and I think that there are lots and lots of opportunities. I think that it's 
it's interesting to me that the tools that annotators get right now are still so bad. I think it's interesting to me that the tools that data scientists use in some ways have not really changed since, remember your friend Kayer who wrote that paper like 2013? You know, look at his paper in 2013. It, like the tools in some ways have not changed enough, right? And and so I think there's lots and lots of opportunities there. And then I think there are lots of opportunities in, ma- in making, um, I don't want to, like making mainstream or more general more to generalize from the lessons we learned from human in the loop. I think human calling things human in the loop kind of was a mistake. There should be a better name for it. And if we had a better name for it, then everyone would think of all their jobs as human in the loop. Because I kind that's I kind of believe that, right? I kind of believe that like sort of in the end, if if we're successful, like every process will be slightly better understood and could be consistent and get consistently better because our job as humans were to either figure out edge cases or create broad clustering so that we can be consistent. So you care about the sort of interface of humans and machine learning, how, how they can work together? I mean, I, I think that I, I think in, in, in at multiple levels, right? At the level of sort of the, at the level of the, the person sort of making the initial decision at the person, at the level of the person sort of like learning from that, at the level of the people controlling that, at the level of the people benefiting from that. I think all those things, like the cutting edge, like we're still in a world where so much of that is siloed, like the way to think about it is siloed. And I think the ways to unlock lots of business value, but also to be honest, like just straightforward good things for humanity is if people had at all levels of that game, sort of like a, bigger view of what it is that they're engaged in, which is like sort of a great game of collective intelligence. Mm. All right. Well, practical question, which might actually have the same answer. It's never happened before as I've asked these pairs of questions. But um, when you look at um, machine learning trying to get adopted and deployed and, and, and useful inside of enterprises, where do you think the the bottleneck is? Like where, where do these projects get stuck? I think they're so often badly conceived and overpromised. Right. And I, and I, and you know, we joked about this in the middle of this. I am still kind of convinced that if we offered your exec ad class to like every senior executive in the world, that we would basically all make much, much better decisions and we'd end up with like sort of much, much more successful implementations. So I, I think that that part's, that part's definitely true. I, I, and, and I also think that like the other thing that's holding us back is we still don't have great methodologies for thinking about how to build these systems, right? That, we are still in software development world. I think it was someone just gave me this history. You know, software like random coding becomes engineering like when NATO decides that it's an important thing in like 1968, and then we sort of codify all this waterfall stuff, right? And it goes from waterfall to extreme to agile over the course of the last like whatever 40 years. And what's interesting to me to me is that that methodology I think is mostly wrong for building machine learning models, and. And so we are still shoehorning these projects as if they're software development projects oftentimes, and thus wasting a bunch of time and money. Awesome. Thanks, James. Okay. Take care. If you're enjoying this interview series, the most helpful thing that you can do for us is leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. And really, we do these shows so that people will watch them. And what I really want is more people to find it. So if you leave us a review, I really appreciate it. So James, here's what I really want to know. How, <laughs> okay. does your, how does your religion inform your thoughts on machine learning? Okay, so this might be this might be both borderline kooky and and heretical. So we'll just caveat it first that way. Fantastic. Okay. Um, so I I think that um, there are a few different angles. I think the first is that sort of it, at least in my theology, I think that you know sort of part of Godliness is the act of creation, right? And I think that there's a way in which, you know, as an investor, I put faith in the act of creation in helping people make something new, right? So that's that's one part. Um, uh, and, you know, sort of the creation of however you want to talk about machine learning, I think there's a sense in which the models that we're building in some ways have sort of inherent worth and dignity 
as sort of basically sub-creations of people, right? That we are creating something new. And whether you want to call it life or whatever you want to call that thing, right? That it is something like fundamentally new and different and interesting. And that piece of it then sort of informs the way I think about both its capabilities and why it's important, but at the same time, and so this is the part where I think other folks might have trouble with this, is that I do believe that we're fallen. I believe that we, I don't, I actually think that we want to be good, but we're act, but we're actually bad. And, and I think that anything we create in some ways has tragic flaws in it, almost no matter what. And so in that way, I'm actually much more both forgiving about people, but also institutions, but also the models that we make, right? These things that we're making are both like, have great beauty and potential, but they're also tragically flawed because we are. I love it. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's definitely going on the podcast. That was great. I mean, it's, it's kind I, of plausible, right? It's not crazy. It's, I mean, it probably no, is crazy. I, I, mean, I, like, I think I like agree with all of it. You know, I, I yeah, I mean, um, yeah, totally. Because I think we oftentimes all think we're good. I mean, I think we we think we're good, but we actually know. I mean, I, I it's not that I'm good. It's I want to be good. And I'm just always doing stupid things. And of course, the things I create are, like, are going to be imperfect. And that means that there, it also means there's this constant chance for improvement, which is the core of the understanding of gradients. 